All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This is Market Musings. I'm Eric Flegel, and I am with the illustrious Scott Poor, Chief Investment Officer of the Eudaimonia Group. Um, Scott is in a fantastic mood today because he has infinite confidence in the Fed. Oh, I have to give my uh, my little disclaimer. Great times. Uh, Scott does use charts. Uh, this is meant to be an informative and uh, kind of educational podcast. We talk about things that I, you know, I, I try to break down the jargon and it's much easier to do that when you can visually see what we're talking about. And so Scott does a really good job at putting charts out that explain it. Um, and I think if you kind of hear his words and see it, it, it really helps kind of grow your knowledge on the markets. And with everything that's going on, this is a fantastic time to really get kind of a, you know, investing 101 real time education better than any MBA you can get right now, because this is real life, you know, there's what the economists say, and, and then there's what the economists do. And I know that's one of the things Scott's going to talk about with 400 economists, what does the Fed say, uh, versus what you would actually learn in your MBA. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Um, he might rant. And if he does, I'll reel him back in. But he's, he, he's in a really good mood. So it'll be a happy rant. Um, you know, at, at this point, you know, we're kind of looking at this thing. Uh, inflation's, you know, run away at this point. Uh, I've got a funny little cartoon where there's the, the leprechaun at the end of the rainbow and the guy's holding a pot of gold in his hand. And the leprechaun said it's been adjusted for inflation. Um, you know, yesterday we... He's he's getting just a tiny bit. Um, you know, the, the Fed uh, decided to raise rates yesterday, no surprise, but uh, it was a little bit of a surprise uh, that it was 75 basis points instead of 50, uh, which is what had been kind of forecasted for a while now. Uh, and, and the futures kind of shifted on Friday towards 75 basis points because of, you know, the Friday's uh, print of CPI for May, which was higher than expected. And, you know, Yesterday, the Fed chairman in this press conference was asked, you know, what's going on with inflation? And he even admitted he was surprised by how high price inflation has grown. And, you know, you just kind of have to take a step back when they say something like that, because, hey, by the way, they've got 400 PhDs and economists at the Fed. The fact that they were surprised by inflation really just doesn't sound plausible at this point. Um, and so you have to kind of wonder, you know, what's been going on? Um, it, it, here's the slides on inflation. I mean, wages are now down, uh, real inflation adjusted, while CPIs continue to go up. And that's causing a major problem for consumers. And we're seeing the shift in consumer behavior. Um the, the PPI came out just the other day. Uh, it actually surprised to the downside. Now, the good news there is that you see that chart on the left. PPI is the blue line. It's it's finally come down the last two months year over year. So when you say PPI, the PPI is the producer index. So that's where that's kind of the wholesale inflation and the CPI is what everyone else pays. Yeah. So if you, if you think about the average consumer, you, you know, pick your product, whether it's toothpaste or what have you. There's input cost to that toothpaste, the the price to, to actually create the toothpaste, the price to, to put it in the tube, the price of the tube itself. All those input costs are what causes the product to go higher or lower for consumers. And, you know, for a while, you can see there in, in the early, the latter part of 2020 and the early part of 21, the producers were willing to put some of those uh, costs on their books and just kind of eat them because they wanted to keep consumers coming to the table and buying their products. They've been passing those off for the last several months, which is why the CPI has exploded higher. 
So when you see that that little peak there and, and you know, two months worth of decline, maybe that's a good sign. Maybe we're starting to see the PPI kind of start to to reach a high and peak out. But that probably doesn't mean that inflation is peaking for the consumer anytime soon, because, again, the consumer, the CPI has still got to catch up to that blue line, the PPI. So probably some more pain, um, you know, in terms of inflation for the consumer ahead. Three or four sentences. What is the Fed trying to do? What's their goal? There's the stated goal and there's what's really going on. And so the stated goal, you can see here, the you think about May 4th. Literally just a month ago, or a little bit over a month ago, they said 75 basis points wasn't even being considered. Now, as of yesterday, 75 basis points obviously was being considered, and it was because of inflation. Um, and so, the, you know, the chairman, the Fed chairman Powell was asked, you know, w- what is it going to take to rein in inflation? And, you know, his comment was, we'll know when we get there. Um, again, not exactly uh, confidence boosting there <laughs> from the Fed chairman. But, you know, at the press conference, his goal is still saying he's trying to avoid a recession. Um, so, you know, you've kind of got this dichotomy going on. Um, everybody's talking about recession. The, uh, the stock market has obviously um, gone down considerably, which is somewhat forecasting a recession because the market's usually ahead of the economy. And we're seeing the cracks in the economy. So a recession is likely, and he's saying that their their uh, idea is to try to avoid a recession or what they've called a soft landing. Um, but the reality is they're still not getting inflation under control, even after a 75 basis point hike. Now, we'll see what that 75 basis point hike. But one thing, uh, one thing folks listening to the call need to understand is that it's not just about the, the, the rate hike. They're now starting quantitative tightening, which is the opposite of what they did during the pandemic, which was quantitative easing. Now they're letting these things roll off the balance sheet. They're no longer buying. They're now essentially, for lack of a better word, selling, so to speak. If you look at a year's worth of quantitative easing, that's 25 basis points worth of a rate hike. So really what we got yesterday was the beginning of a 1% rate hike. Uh, essentially, when it's all said and done. So we'll see if that does, in fact, tamp down inflation. But what I think is really going on and why you see that change is that consumers are actually changing their behavior. They're they're abandoning discretionary items for um, – they're abandoning discretionary items for um, essentials, and that's that's what they're doing. So do you see when they with this inflation issue, companies, you know, building up inventory, you see grocery, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, grocery stores, Target, Walmart going down 25 percent, supply chain, all this stuff. It, it, it seems like there needs to be like third quarter earnings. I don't see how those come back positive. You're going to have almost like a we have a P.E. like P.E. is a price to earnings ratio where earnings kind of drive like the price of the stock divided by its earnings. If all of these earnings ratchet down. And everyone's saying, oh, well, the, the, the price of earnings for the overall market is 16.5. But then all the earnings ratchet down. Then all of a sudden the market's expensive again and it goes back down even more. Do you see that kind of happening here in the third and fourth quarter? And is that fueled by inflation? Like, how, how do you how do you kind of because you're saying on one hand, you don't want a recession. But on the other hand, you're letting inflation run, which is going to obviously impact earnings. So. How, you know, what are we trying to really achieve here? And, and do you see kind of a better way to get this done? 
Well, so the, the ultimate way to have gotten it done was using your 400 economists uh, with PhDs and, and actually addressing inflation last year. That was the ideal scenario. That's done and over with. Can't go back and, and redo history. So at this point, you know, they're really caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, they have to raise rates to try and slow things down. Unfortunately, I think they're slowing things down at the wrong time because, it, like we said before, the consumer is already changing their behavior. If we kind of move forward a couple slides, um, you can see what's ha happening in the housing market. Um, housing starts came back today, basically plummeted uh, month over month. Building permits are down. So higher interest rates, you know, higher costs elsewhere. People are deciding to, to not buy that home they may have been planning on buying, and the housing market is starting to respond. You look at retail sales. There's the retail sales number that came out uh, yesterday. Uh, it was, I think it was down month over month, but slightly up year over year, yet you can see the trajectory. Red book sales is another way to kind of look at things. That's a, that's a weekly number that comes out, but it is based on a year over year basis. Same trend down. So you've got the Fed doing this. Unfortunately, I think they're doing it at the wrong time, uh, which again, if we, you know, if we kind of go back here and look at um, what we've talked about before, um, and that is every time the Fed starts this rate hiking cycle, it pushes us off into recession. And you said, just so people know, typical cycles, 18 months, typical number of raises, nine raises. And we're three raises and four months in now. Is that right? Or are we five months in? Yeah, three raises and four months in. So, yeah. So we're about a third of the way through. But, you know. Mm -hmm. So what How does you know, looking... No, but I also, I also know the, you know, it, it, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues kind of going on. How much of this can really be pointed towards, because I know the, and I just want to kind of parse out like fact from fiction here and what we hear kind of pundits say, how much of this can really be pointed towards Ukraine and how much of this is really self-inflicted? And I think you answered this question when you said we should have started addressing this last year. Ukraine didn't exist last year the, in terms of the conflict. Um, so how much of this is really involved, like, you know, involves Ukraine? Yeah. So you look at the chart here, for those of you tuning into the YouTube channel, um, you can see the rise in inflation all the way up to February of this year. That's really when the Ukraine crisis started. So I've got a little line there, gray line that shows Ukraine crisis, but you can see all the buildup before Ukraine. Has Ukraine exacerbated the situation some? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Um, you look at Ukraine and the fact that they cannot get any of their primary grains, commodities out of the country and get them shipped around the world. That's a problem. So when you look at it from Ukraine's perspective, they are the kind of the focus of the world right now when it comes to commodities, getting those commodities shipped out of the country and, you know, imported or exported rather all over the world. And they were trying to negotiate a safe passage between Ukraine and India and several other countries. And Ukraine declined because you have to think about it from Ukraine's perspective. If the, the focus is off of the war and they're still getting commodities out of the country, people really won't be paying attention to their cause. And so that's a concern for Ukraine. So they declined it, which, again, is exacerbating things. But gas was rising and inflation was rising long before the Ukraine crisis. And that's just the reality of the numbers. That's not a political statement. It just it is what the numbers are. You can see it there in the graph. The reason I ask the question is because I want people to understand if the Ukraine crisis ends, this crisis, inflation and the probability of recession, they are not 
tied to each other. Like one, they impact each other a little bit, but this issue went on before and it will persist during and then after if it ends as well. Uh, and and I, I bring that up from a planning standpoint because I want people to plan appropriately and, and being, you know, and I think that's why you were so frustrated when we started this call without real clear direction from the Fed on what they're going to do, you know, starting at the wrong time and then being kind of wishy-washy and even their messaging, it's really hard to plan. So with all that in mind, I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. How do you plan right now? What do you do? And I know you've already wait, just, you know, talk a little bit about the wealth protection signal too, because you do have an overall look as well, but how, how do you plan right now? And so this is the chart uh, for those of you on the on the uh, on the call that can see it on the YouTube channel. This is the chart that keeps me up at night. So what you've got that goes on, and a lot of people don't know about this. What goes on behind the scenes overnight is that the banks lend to each other. It's called the repo market. Those are repurchase agreements. That what happens is the major banks who trade in ultra short term treasuries. I mean, literally, we're talking about overnight treasuries. They're doing this to maintain liquidity in the market. So it gives them a little bit of extra cash so that when they come into the market the next morning, they've got plenty of cash on hand to place trades and do things they need to do for business purposes. In 2008, all of that, you've probably heard this phrase before, it froze up. All the liquidity dried up. And so that repo market went to zero. Nobody was trading with anybody else overnight, and that caused everybody to panic the next day in the markets, and it, it just fed on itself. The reverse repo market came about around 2014, but the Fed wasn't really using it much. The Fed was essentially there as a direct lender to the banks instead of J.P. Morgan lending to Wells Fargo and Wells Fargo lending to Citigroup. This was a direct lending from the Fed to the banks. They were using it as a kind of stabilizer. You know, when liquidity kind of dries up a little bit or it declines a little bit, they can use it as a stabilizer temporarily to make sure things don't get crazier out of whack or liquidity dries up. 2019, right before the pandemic, the re reverse repo market started to explode. And then in 2021, it really started to explode. Now, the theory is that the reason why it began to explode, and you can see that from the green line here in the charts, that's the reverse repo market relative to the typical regular repo market. Reverse repo market, in theory, was being used by the Fed to encourage banks not to lend money out. If they could do it in the reverse repo market, they could get liquidity they need, but also get a higher credit interest directly from the Fed instead of lending that money out. In this way, the Fed could help control inflation without hiking rates. But inflation has risen anyway. So, yes, you've slowed things down a little bit. Of course, you can only imagine if they didn't have the re reverse repo market, what inflation would be like today. But now what, what the, what the uh, unintended consequence of this is, and you can see now we were at, call it 40, 50 billion overnight, not a big number in terms of the overall market. Now you look at the number overnight, and it's $2.2 trillion overnight each night that the Fed is lending. This is causing a false sense of liquidity because the banks don't trust each other to lend to each other right now. It's just not happening. The regular repo market is at zero. They're not trading with each other in the repo market. So let's, let's dig into that for a minute because I think it's important for people to understand. It's a very kind of deep concept, but I think it's a cool thing for people to understand. Why don't banks trust each other? Because you think to yourself, they're banks. They're FDIC insured. Like, why wouldn't they trust each other? 
So this this actually ties into the wealth protection signal. One of the components of the wealth protection signal is the TED spread. The TED spread measures that institutional fear or panic when they feel that the market's about to crash, that credit's drying up, that liquidity's drying up. They go from riskier securities, which are considered euro dollar securities, and go back to three month T bills because that's the safest place you can run to in an economic crisis. Doesn't mean that three month T bills are the safest place, regardless, and there's zero risk, but in terms of the world, they're considered the safest place to be. Um, and so, what's happened now is that the banks really are fearful, which is why you've had Jamie Dimon's uh, comments about a quote, quote, hurricane coming. Um, and they're not willing to trade with each other because they're fearful, not just of the markets themselves, but also. You know, what does Wells Fargo's balance sheet look like versus Citigroup's and, and so forth? So there's just a lack of trust there. Doesn't mean that those banks are going away and, and that they're bad. It just means there's a lack of trust. So they're much more willing to trade directly with the Fed. And then that number, as you can see from the graph, has just exploded over time since the you know, middle or early to 2021. So the Fed's really in the mix in a lot of ways. And I don't want to, I don't want to go back. And bring up like ancient history, but they were also trading. You know, you had certain Fed members that were trading, you know, stocks that had to step down and whatnot in the last year. There's just they have their fingers, it seems like, in a lot of places. And it it just when you're trying to find a institution that inspires confidence that people can say, all right, like, give me some direction. We've kind of talked about it. You don't have it. But then you also have that other moniker that says, don't fight the Fed. If they're raising rates, you know. Well, I'll just so just kind of expand on it. So when someone hears that, what does that mean? If they're lowering rates, things are easing. The economy is going to get better. You can make money. If they're raising rates, things are tightening. Things are going to get harder. It's going to be harder to make money in the market. The market's going to struggle. So if that's the environment we're going into, you know, what what do we do? Knowing that that we're trying to follow those guys. I think you have to look at this number that, that's on the graph and say, okay, in a normal environment, the reverse repo market would essentially be unnecessary. It, it, you wouldn't even need it. If the banks are trading with each other overnight and they're trading in ultra short-term treasuries, everything's functioning correctly, everything's good. The fact that this number has exploded tells you that the Fed thinks that this is necessary, um, which also tells you that there should be a coming liquidity crisis at some point. Because uh, even at some point, the banks will say, I've had enough. We're, we're not even going to trade with the Fed. We're, we're out. We're done. Um, and when you get to that moment, I think that's when you finally get your capitulation moment in equities. Um, yes, it's been painful here. But unfortunately, I don't think we've seen the majority of the pain yet. When you say the majority of the pain, you think that we're because we're down 20. You know, you don't think we're even halfway there? We could be. I mean, you never know um, if the Fed were to reverse course. Uh, pretty quickly sometime this year and say we're we're, we're no longer going to raise rates uh, because clearly it's it's not having a dramatic effect on inflation. Or if they did see a peak in inflation, inflation started to come down, that would be a great scenario. Um, and, and actually, you know, we could get that peak sooner than, rather than later because of the change in behavior of the consumers. There's a whole bunch of things going on here that may or may not happen. If the Fed were to reverse course and stop raising rates, I think things would probably settle down just a little bit. Um, however, you know, it's it, we've got some issues going on. If you think about 2008, from peak to trough, the S&P was down 56%. So could we have more downside? Absolutely, we could. So what does your wealth protection signal say? 
where are we at? I knew we've already raised 10%. Like, where are we at now? Yeah, so uh, when you look at it today, we've raised 10%. It's been kind of trading a lot like 2008, only the market hasn't been trading like 2008 yet. So when you look at it today, it's still you know relatively low. And we've, we've addressed this before on the call. In 2007, before the crisis started, it triggered and then went down. And you could see it kind of settled down for about a month, almost two months there, and then finally spiked again and hit a, hit a second trigger point, actually before the market peaked in October of 2007. You've seen the action in the wealth protection signal very similar now. Only the difference is the market has sold off, unlike 2008. Um, and I think it's it goes back to this reverse repo. If you think about 2007, the reverse repo market did not exist. It wasn't they instead wasn't even using it. It wasn't even a tool. Now, 2.2 trillion reverse repos. Again, it's providing a false sense of liquidity that once institutional traders realize that there's a, a major problem, you know, we'll probably hit that second trigger and ultimately third trigger. I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, it's, it's for someone that's, that's watching this, you know, you, you kind of, I mean, do you, I, I know we had this conversation. Do you try to, I mean, this is the reason you're disciplined. So I, I try to, to just stay in lockstep with what's going on, but it's hard to look at the facts and not want to raise cash now. And I think we talked about this last week and you're kind of like, Hey, you could, but you know, the fed could, because if the fed determines a lot of things, you don't fight them they could come out with some kind of wonky program or they could say, we're going to stop. Um, the hard thing when it comes to inflation and these fed meetings, they only happen once a month. So you kind of get your inflation reading and then you got a month to just kind of sit in it. And these numbers, unfortunately haven't been great. So you're going to sit in the bad news for a month. Yeah. So you look at the futures market, the futures market is already pricing in. It's weird in the summertime. We actually do have another fed meeting next month. Um, they're pricing in a 75 basis point rate hike. And then it's a little bit of a toss-up in September. September will be the next meeting after July. And it's a little bit of a toss-up between 50 basis point hike or 75 basis point hike. Right now, it's kind of leaning toward 50. And so, unfortunately, between now and September, a whole lot of things are going to happen. Uh, a lot of data will come out, and we'll have to digest a lot more of what's really going on in the economy. You know, between July and September, we'll get another GDP number. Um, while it technically wasn't negative, the, the growth comparison was negative, but the GDP actually slightly increased just a little bit um, last quarter. It's probably going to be negative this quarter. It'll probably be negative uh, quarter, quarter of a quarter growth. And so, you know, that's not going to bode well either, like, we, like you said, for, for corporate earnings. Um, so there's a lot of data to have to digest before we get to September, and that could, again, change the Fed's um, decision making. Well, we've said it before. I mean, I think large cap quality right now, um, you kind of had the last, I don't know, probably two or three weeks ago when the market had its little mini, mini bump. You had a chance to kind of pull back, reshift, take some profits, you know, move some things to more defensive type places. Um, I don't want to recap the entirety of it. I mean, we, I think we go back like two episodes and we could talk about, we could listen to what we talked about. Uh, anything else that you'd want to tell people? All right. So, you know, you have to kind of look at things from from different perspectives. If you're a 25 to 30 year old, you know, you've got another 25 to 30 to even maybe even 40 years on your side before you will actually retire. So you're going to experience probably five, maybe six more of these types of markets. You're going to see these recessions. You're going to see your equities go down. You should probably be buying, not 
all the time, but slowly stepping in as the market continues to go down because you are going to be in a situation where 10 to 20 to 30 years from now, the prices you're buying it today are going to be significantly lower than where the market will be you know, 20, 30 years from now. If you're a retiree or about to retire, you've got a much different perspective. So again, you should be working with your advisor, your financial planner, trying to figure out how much money you need to have in cash to weather this storm, because it will be a temporary storm. Just like when we get a thunderstorm overnight, eventually the dawn will rise and the storm will be over. Um, so this will be a temporary event. Now, it's not going to feel like it and it's going to be painful. It's not going to feel like it's a lot of fun. But you have to remember, it will be temporary. And we've gone through these things before. You can go, if I go back to our chart, you know, where we have all of the previous recessions, they we've gone through these things before and we've come out of them and we will come out of this. one. But it is good to take appropriate measures. How much cash do you need today to make sure you've got enough spending in retirement? Or how much cash do you need today to make you feel comfortable at night? You probably shouldn't go to 0%, I mean, 0% equity and go to 100% cash because the reality is you probably won't know when to get back in. And it's probably not a, a great decision. But like you said before, being defensive, let's go to, let's overweight to large caps. That's where the safer money is going to be. There's less volatility in large caps than mid and small caps. There's less volatility in certain sectors. You think about utilities. You think about consumer uh, uh, staples, and you think about healthcare. Those are things that are going to be used in the recession, regardless of what's going on. You still have to turn on your lights. You still have to turn on your air conditioner. So utilities are going to still be needed. You're still going to have to eat. So you will go to the grocery store and you will buy things, even in a recession. And you will definitely have to have healthcare, unfortunately, in certain times during the recession. So those are three sectors to think about, maybe refocusing on and getting away from high growth, high momentum type of, of asset classes like uh, or sectors like you know inf information technology, communication services, et cetera. That's a really good point. And I, and I like the reminder of kind of your station in life, where you're at, and then just kind of working through the plan. Um, Appreciate you very much, Scott. Um, thanks for making the time as always. Thanks for putting the time into the slides. Uh, if, if you're listening to this, I definitely encourage you to, to take a look at some of these because they just add really good context and make what Scott says very clear. So again, Scott, thank you very much and I uh, look forward to talking to you again in two weeks here. <music>